Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbun, and I'm coming to you from Sydney, Australia, where I'm a senior lecturer at Macquarie University. And I have the pleasure today to be speaking with Natalia Melman Petrazella, who is the associate, who is an, I should say, associate professor of history at the New School and also the author of a, of a couple of fantastic books. The first is Classroom Wars, Language, Sex, and the Making of Modern Political Culture, which is out with Oxford University Press in 2015. But we're here today to talk about um, Natalia's most recent book, Fit Nation, The Gains and Pains of America's Exercise Obsession, which is out with the University of Chicago Press in 2022. Uh, in 2023, 2022, right? Am I... It's weird. It came out technically 2022, but it never it didn't ship or release until January 23. So January Jan- January 23. Uh, but most excitingly, is going to paperback this year. I mean, that's amazing. It... I'm really excited. <laughs> Yeah, so um, pick up copy right now and pick up a paperback too. <laughs> yes, so- please do. Audiobook too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for uh, joining me, Natalia. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. So I have to say, um, it, I, I love this book. It was just, I, I actually uh, read sections out loud to my wife, which I don't do for most of the books that I read. What? That's the first time I've heard that. And that's amazing. Thank well, my you. wife. My wife is a big uh, bar. Um, she goes to bar probably four times a week. And so we got to talking about about bar uh, because of this. And we were reading out loud and laughing and kind of, you know, discussing how the vibes have changed or not changed. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I love that. Couples reading. I love no, that's it. I right. It that way. <laughs> Perfect um, date night. Read aloud. <laughs> Well, I think you're. I, we're laughing more because we know the context. But maybe we shouldn't go too much into that. <laughs> You'll only know if you read, listeners. You'll only know if you read. <laughs> That's right. Um, Natalia, could you tell me a little bit more about uh, how you developed this project? You you write about it in the beginning, and it's it's pretty compelling. So I wonder if you can tell us a bit more. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so I'm a historian of modern United States, and my first book was about the 60s and 70s in California. So in some ways, it's like, oh, it makes perfect sense in the intellectual trajectory to turn next to fitness and wellness cultures, because the 60s and 70s were such an important moment for that. And California was such an important site for that. So that's definitely there. But there's a much deeper personal story, which is that, um, Growing up, I was always like really intimidated by any pursuit of the body, whether it was fitness or um, I actually didn't really know what fitness was, but like PE class or sports or dance. This was like in the 1990s when I was in high school. And I was so mortified by PE class that I got a kind of path to do an independent study in phys ed. 
which just meant something supervised. And so I found my way to a step aerobics class in uh, the Jewish community center where I lived. And I was really just thinking anything would be better than phys ed, but this I loved, like moving together, the music, feeling myself getting stronger. It was challenging, but I could do it. It like everything about it, like awakened something inside of me. And I'm like, what is this world? It's not sport. It's not really dance, but like, what is it? And that was just my curiosity as a 16 year old. So I went on to kind of, you know, be, I was very academic and like made my way to be a historian, but I had this kind of like second life as a gym rat. I was working at gyms, teaching fitness, et cetera. And I realized that this, what is this feeling actually had a sort of scholarly counterpart, which was that scholars hadn't actually thought seriously about what the gym is in American life. And so I turned to that and that was the project that uh, preoccupied me for almost a decade and became Fit Nation. That's, uh, I, I loved this because I actually spent a lot of time at the JCC myself when I was a kid. Yeah, all roads lead to the JCC. <laughs> but um, yeah, doing not, not doing any, anything fit. I was more sporty, baseball and basketball, but um, that's funny. Uh, I, I love this book. One of the things I really loved about this book was that you chase out these tensions that never seem to really disappear between between what what is fitness versus what sport can fitness be liberatory or is it about stratification and restriction uh is it was this driven by the public or the private is it about <laughs> wellness or is it about something else enti entirely so i wonder if you can talk a little bit about um you know beyond just the idea that there's a gap in the literature and a lot of scholars don't take physical culture seriously. Um, what were some of the broader goals of the project? Like, what 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 surprised you, and what is what's the what's the big takeaway you want people to have? Sure. So, in terms of the broader goals of the project, um, my kind of animating question. I always describe this moment. I was at a conference. It was American Studies in Los Angeles, and I went for a walk in LA, which you should never do because you end up on a freeway, <laughs> like I always do. And I looked up over the freeway, no cars hit me, thank goodness. And I saw this gym and there were all of these people like running on a treadmill at like seven o'clock at night or something. And I remember thinking like, this is crazy. Some visitor from another planet would look at this and be like, there are all these people who are like running really fast and really hard and not spending time with their family and not looking like they're having fun and spending money to do this. And like, what is this? Right. So I started to kind of think about it in that kind of like broad sense, like almost ethnographically of like, what is this space and like what animates people to participate in it. But then really, <laughs> but then really the thing that kind of got me going was what I might think of as a paradox, which is this notion that in the United States, which, which is so divided by politics and polarization of various sorts, pretty much everyone agrees exercise is good for you and even believes like exercise makes you a good person. And at the same time, less than a third of Americans exercise the recommended daily amount. And so that, those two issues or dynamics or questions really pushed me to first explore as a historian, well, how did we get here to this consensus that regular exercise is good for you? And I started in a moment when that was absolutely not the consensus and tracked that over time. But also, if we do agree that it's so good for you, why do so few people do it? And um, I don't know, you want the spoiler of like kind of me answering that or should we say? Yeah, that? no, well, no, 
I mean, I, I, I should say for readers, um, Natalia spools this out like very comprehensively, but extremely readably in set in seven yeah. sections. Um, so, uh, it, I, I encourage people to read it because I mean, actually it's really, um, it's really compelling. It, you get to follow these characters, some of them quite, I mean, Jack Leland, you're following through, through a very, a very large part of the book. Um, but give a, yeah, give, live, live, uh, pardon me, give listeners the spoiler, like, you know. Yeah. So the basic idea is that we started a moment. I started in 1893 when I say sweating was strange. Like if you were someone who wanted to work on your muscles or go to the gym regularly, whether you were a man or a woman for different reasons, like that was suspicious behavior. It was seen as if you're a guy, like weirdly effeminate. Why do you care what your body looks like? Why do you want to hang out with all these sweaty dudes? Why are you focusing on the physical rather than the cerebral? Shouldn't you be playing sports if you're doing something? physical and for women the idea was like you know sweating and building muscles is totally unfeminine it makes you look masculine it can damage your uterus and your fertility and it's just sort of unseemly and so you've had these really strong kind of cultural barriers to participating in um, fitness cultures at that time and so basically the story that I tell is how fitness went from being this strange subculture, which I attribute largely to it being seen as a very narrow physical pursuit to being kind of perceived as an integral part of the good life. And so the story that I tell throughout, you know, the long 20th century, let's say, is that this narrowly physical activity gets attached to a whole range of much broader purposes. First, you have kind of like fitness as civic commitment and that's like jfk and eisenhower and then you have like fitness as liberatory and like bodily self-reclamation and that's the panthers and these feminists who are like throwing off ideas about female frailty or about um you know black uh lack of self bodily knowledge then you also have like conservatives who are like yes you know who needs health care and welfare? Just get out, unlike these permissive hippies and do something hard, go running, like discipline and all of that. Um, this evolves over time. A, a, a consumer capitalist economy really seizes <laughs> this and runs with it. But combined with a kind of intellectual shift where the notion of mind-body holism, which today is a totally trite cliche, but absolutely did not exist in the United States, the 50s, the 60s, even outside of the counterculture in the 1970s, that really goes mainstream. And that is very good for the mainstreaming of fitness culture. This idea that you cannot be a fully actualized person if you're not working on your body. And so that makes it less about like, I'm just working on pumping up my bicep to like, I'm just, you know, working on myself and being fully actualized. And that is, um, feels loftier and thus is an easier sell and feels kind of more socially important. Yeah. I, I um, uh, and sometimes you read books and you feel seen and you're like, it not in a good way. Sometimes. <laughs> I know. Like, just, yes. Sometimes you write books and you're like, I feel seen. And not That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. So Natalia, you've given us, you've given us kind of the broad scope and in the interest of time, because I, I know we, we have some time uh, issues uh, with myself, really. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's, um, let's, let's jump right in. I, we can we can take as as read I guess that that early moment of of Cartesianness where we're like oh sweating is weird let's stay out of, let's 
so maybe you give us, because um, I think listeners who are from the United States will remember presidential fitness tests. So maybe that's a way to like, just draw them right in. Like why, what is, when, when does the government really get invested in fitness and investing in fitness and trying to regulate how fitness happens in places? So, you know, it's kind of like a slow build from the early 20th century. Like you do have the symbolism of like Teddy Roosevelt, who loves the strenuous life, but it's pretty symbolic. He's not really investing in like physical fitness programs. There is this really important turning point that in a book that some of your listeners will know by Rachel Louise Moran called Governing Bodies. It's so good. And she talks about the way that the New Deal was actually this really important turning point and that the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, Actually, part of the way that it marketed itself was, you know, young men will get this like strong, muscular physique by working for their country. And the promotional materials for this, I mean, they look like gay physique magazines. And you're like, the federal <laughs> government put this out. But that was really important in kind of like sanitizing that idea of bodily work as being part of civic commitment. And so to get to the physical fitness test, the kind of sea change that happens is in the 50s and 60s with Eisenhower and Kennedy. And really, it's neither of them, but this um, woman, Bonnie Pruden, who lives in White Plains, she's like this suburban, I'll call her a homemaker because she wasn't working outside the home at this time, but she had a big life um, before having children. And she noticed that all these kids, <laughs> she noticed that in her bedroom community, which like were Americans who kind of had it all. They had TVs and they had cars and leisure and frozen foods and all this. The kids were really out of shape. And she was like, this is actually a problem. And she first thought of it just in terms of like the kids' health. And so she was like running little workout classes at her daughter's schools, et cetera. And she publishes an article about this in this obscure journal. Like very few people read it. No one gets attention. But it's when she connects this to national security and the fact that if young American children and the ones who are supposed to like be live, be enjoying the best of what America has to offer, if they are too unfit to fight, well, then America has a problem. So she gets the ear of the White House under Eisenhower. Eisenhower, you know, former general is like all into this. He appoints Richard Nixon to the head of the Presidential Council on Youth Fitness. Obvious choice, right? Super famous, yeah. Dick Nixon. Yeah. yeah. And um, they start this PE program to encourage fitness in schools. And what's interesting about that is it's, it's a very significant turning point, but it's like not fun. Like this is very militaristic. It's what you would think it's military style calisthenics. It's only like uh, targeting at boys. It's very fear-based like, oh, we're all going to be too fat. The Russians are going to beat us. Like you better do sit-ups. Like, it's not fun. Enter JFK, like perfect poster boy for fitness, right? He's the youngest president ever. Incidentally, of course, he suffered from a lot of health health ailments that actually made him quite unwell. But he kind of infuses this fun and lifestyle to fitness. He's like challenging his brother to do 50 mile hikes and he's in photo <laughs> shoots, like playing on the beach. And he brings girls into the programs and introduces these fitness programs in schools and really promotes them really hard as being like, core to not only being like a good American who's protecting the United States from the Cold War, but also core to like being kind of like affluent and and aspirational. And like, this is part of like a good American life, not just leisure, but this kind of spending your leisure time in this way. And so you asked earlier on about, or like commented as one of the themes, which you're right, it is the book, 
the relationship between fitness and sport. What was so interesting in looking at the documents around these programs was this real push-pull between the world of sport and the world of fitness, which is relatively new in terms of like a policy item at this time. And basically what happens is that Kennedy and his fitness boosters are very invested in promoting recreational fitness as something different from and even antithetical to sport. Very surprising to me. So you, some of the documents that were being like passed around to districts were like, actually, an elite sports program in your school system can be a real liability for our goals because it makes kids think that sport and movement is only for the very talented. And Kennedy would talk about something that he called spectatoritis. Spectatoritis was an affliction that he didn't want to afflict American kids where they thought their role was on the sidelines. And so they were promoting like the opposite of that. These are games that everyone can get involved in and like different challenges where they're very hierarchical, like military, but different levels. And it was really interesting, though, that he did so much work to distinguish this from sport. But in order to sell it to an American public that was very skeptical of fitness and constantly, by the way, making fun of JFK for this, they called it like his fits of fitness and like thought he was so silly <laughs> for this stuff. But in order to do it, he has to get some really famous sports figures to stand up next to him and talk about this. So, for example, um, he hires or appoints Bud Wilkinson, who's this really famous college football coach, to be like, kids, you should be out there being active. Go for a jog with your mother, right? And like, um, so he has like, he's both like pushing away sport and trying to add something more inclusive, but also needs the support of widely respected sports figures to promote. So it's just super interesting. And you asked about the presidential fitness challenge. Yes, it absolutely comes out of that. And I should say that's a really good moment to say that there's a lot of like golden age thinking about um, like, oh, the halcyon days, of like the JFK PE programs. And yeah, I'd take those over some of the like nonsense that gets passed off or there are no PE in schools today. But as many people traumatized by the fitness challenge can tell you, like they were kind of horrible. You'd be in front of the whole class like, the okay, do climb. the rope climb. <laughs> yeah, the rope climb traumatized <laughs> me. I think that's what sent me to do my independent study. The rope climb, the flexibility test, all of it. Like yeah. it was very much a performance. And I talked to many people for this book who said it turned them off exercise forever. So let's not like, let's reinstate something better than that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, I mean, and that's a nice lead into your next cha chapters. And it it makes me think when you're talking about the way in which this kind of spectator-itis uh, was a concern of JFK's, it was a concern in France at the same time. And I talked with another author, um, we had spoken before we started recording about uh, Czech Republic. And I talked to an author who wrote about the Spartakid and in, in the Czech Republic and these kind of like all these, um, this was an era of alternative fitness uh, kind of kind of globally, but it always was kind of based on the assumption of a, of a, a kind of single or maybe a dual subject, like, uh, you know, the male, male subject, the boy, the, the female subject, the girl who are one thing, 
But as your chat, as you move on to part two, or, or pardon me, part three and part four, you actually say, okay, that was a big, big problem because the, the, the JFK account might've included women, but it was basically just a suburban, um, more or less wealthy suburban yeah. approach. Right. And so what, what, so this is, yeah. Yeah. Jump in, jump I'm in. I'm like leaping through the Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm like, I know something about that. Let me tell you. So it's funny. At the beginning of my work on this book, or the very, very beginning, was the end of the Obama years. And so as I was reading some of this stuff, well, like the obvious echo was like, oh my God, this is like, let's move and Michelle Obama. And it, there is something to that. Like, I think that Obama, also another young, uh, you know, apparently very fit pre president. <laughs> absolutely took a cue from JFK in promoting fitness. What is so profoundly different is who the target of those programs were. In the 1950s and 60s, as you said, the idea was a kind of middle-class white suburbanite who was enjoying too much leisure, right? Like there are all of these uh, like public service announcements which talk about like the excesses of push-button luxury, like, you know, remote control TVs or being able to drive places and, and that being the problem. By now, or the Obama years, which are now like, you know, at least yeah, 10 years behind us. Like, isn't that crazy? Yeah, like almost 10 years behind us, completely, I guess. Um, the subjects are like poor black and brown people in cities, right? Like that's where obesity is concentrated. And um, those are considered the kind of problematic bodies to focus on. And I think that some, I mean, there are a lot of reasons for that. One of the biggest ones is like a shift in our food system starting in the 1980s, where you have a, a range of policies that make, um, you know, cheap, fast food, like the most honestly intelligent option for a lot of uh, poor people to eat, which con contributes way more than lack of exercise to obesity. Um, but part of it is also that, you know, the other big story I tell is the rise of an industry. And so there's a massive industry, whether it's private gyms for more adults, but increasingly kids too, or like private sports, such that kids who are more affluent are, you know, not impervious, obviously, to obesity or other reasons not to exercise, but have a lot more options if they can pay for them. But we never got that full-throated, full-scale public investment in parks, pools, recreation centers, et cetera, that I think really could have made a difference in um, the stark and horrible uh, and economic inequality that's manifested in, in terms of fitness in this country. Yeah. I, 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 one of the things that struck me about these chapters as well is the way in which kind of the site of sport moves as, as well away from schools and towards kind of the house as well as 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 private organizations too so i wonder if you can talk a little a little bit about that because one of the i mean in some ways when i finished your book i was like oh this is actually a history of neoliberalism <laughs> so i i i wonder if you can talk a bit about about how because i i I, I, I think that's another one of the main threads. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that happens too. So sport, uh, pardon me, fitness gets drawn out of schools and into other places. Yeah. So first on neoliberalism, because I know you have a very scholarly audience here. Yeah. So one of the things I was trying to do with this book is kind of resist, but also contribute to the literature on neoliberalism, specifically as pertains to fitness. So one of the things that I found really annoying, quite honestly, is that to the extent like people were writing about fitness, it was 
very uh, quickly dismissed as like another example of neoliberalism and all this is is navel gazing and the kind of internalization of the industrialized clock and like narcissistic, et cetera. And it's usually guys making those arguments. And so I agree with some of those arguments, as you say, <laughs> telling the story of privatization, which absolutely reflects another dimension of the kind of austerity politics, which are at the heart of the argument that neoliberalism has characterized, you know, recent American history. So I'm absolutely part of that. But what I wanted to express is to say that, like, it's not all that. There is mm -hmm. a lot going on mm -hmm. in fitness cultures, which within the realm of neoliberalism, like doesn't overtly resist it, but like they're important forms of community and solidarity and that are happening within there, but also forms of resistance. Like I talk about a lot of radical fitness traditions, which um, resist that. So yeah, I just wanted to add that in there. Oh, um, but yeah, in terms, yeah, in terms of where it's moved. Yeah. So to a certain extent, I mean, this book is a, a book that tells about the fall of the physical education and kind of public fitness policy universe and the rise of the private fitness industry. And that is really sad to me because there is that the first people who are enthusiastic about exercise contributing to a good life are people who want to teach phys ed in public schools. Like we are a really old profession that does that. Like, you know, along with the other professions, it's kind of like late 19th century. But this was really robust and there was a lot of expertise there and a commitment to um, phys ed kind of advancing the goals of the polity and all the rest and being democratically accessible. And really, like there were a lot of Black women, especially who came up as PE uh, people. So all of that, I think, is really important. That uh, field is around and like continuing to be what to be really important to all these federal programs that are promoting, you know, physical fitness as part of the Cold War, et cetera, et cetera. So much so that in the late 70s and early 80s, as like the broader kind of fitness industry and enthusiasm is picking up, it's absolutely heartbreaking. You read in these phys ed journals, they're like, this is our moment. Like, you know, the whole country is jogging. They're doing fitness classes. Like we've been here for 75 years and we have all this expertise. And now phys ed is going to get its moment in the sun and we're going to get funding. And it's going to be amazing. That like the opposite happened, literally. And what ends up happening, and I have a lot of interviews and also data to bear this out, is that as that private industry boomed, some of like the leading lights, honestly, who were really talented people who wanted to go into it, were horrified that they would end up a gym teacher, as they said. Instead, they were like, I can go teach on cruises and in private gyms and have celebrity, celebrity clients and make VHS tapes. And trust me, that life is not as glamorous as that sounds. And there's a lot of like precarious labor and all that um, precarious labor going on there. But the, to this larger point, Phys ed never gets its moment in the sun. This is Reagan's America. It gets chopped off, chopped away as like a kind of frill in education and really never recovers from that. And it's still a huge issue. Like, you know, as much as we all love exercise and we think it's good and we think it's important, you increasingly see um, kind of privatized programs being um, the way that these things are disseminated. And I think that is like so sad and such a missed opportunity. And if, you know, Joe Biden or whoever is successor is calls me up to the White House to ask me to fix it, I would like 
jump at the chance to president council of uh you know sport fitness yeah. <laughs> i would love that i love yeah. love love life goals <laughs> well i'm, I'm, I'm I, I really take your point earlier and I, I would say for listeners like one of the things that i that i think this book does really really well is actually it doesn't sit in a comfortable spot vis-a-vis fitness like it's not fitness is bad it's not fitness is good it it's an insiders in some ways account because you are in uh, you are invested in fitness it, i think it's fair to say right but also oh, like yeah for very, sure it's a very critical account so throughout like you you i i i wish we had a lot a lot a lot of time to talk about it and we could go through like uh but i mean you're talking about jane fonda <laughs> and discuss the liberatory possibilities of of feminist fitness while still saying that it's within a a, a frame in which female fitness is sexualized right so it's not it's neither one way or the other, which I think is really, which is really good. It's not like a Gutman, not to badmouth other people, but, you know, account where, where fitness or sport is kind of proto-fascistic. It's not like that at all. It's, it, your reading is quite different. And I would say, just because we're, we were talking about Reagan, one of the parts that I, um, one of the sections that kind of comes up repeatedly, but that I really liked is the ways in which gyms were sites for organization for uh, the gay community. Right. And totally. like, that's so important. So I do, I, I, I want to give you some more time to talk about, um, you know, the, the this kind of resistance, uh, fitness as well. And so is for people who haven't read the book, like what are the, like, if you want to talk a bit about gay organization, that's fine, but just, or, or yeah. fitness, that's great too. Um, but yeah. you know, we've talked a lot about this, the state, what the state wants and who are these people who are resisting the state and not trying to work within the state at all. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that gay gym culture is a great example of that, of um, these sites, which were important places for organization for gay men. And so I take this up at different moments, but, you know, kind of certainly pre-Stonewall, but in the early 20th, early half of the 20th century, as I mentioned before, there was this kind of homophobic uh, stereotype that if you were a man who went to a fitness space, you must be somehow sexually deviant. Like those were not places where straight men out. And while that was caught up in a lot of um, homophobic uh, assumptions, there also was some truth to it. Because of course, this was a moment where if you were a man um, who was looking to, um, you know, have a romantic relationship with other men, there weren't that many places you could do that publicly, right? Gay bars did not exist, at least legally. And so gyms and physique magazines were actually spaces where men could meet one another under the pretense of like, oh, we're into phys- physical culture or in those magazines, it was often I'm into like classical art because a lot of the bottles were um, we would pose in kind of classical garb like statues. So there's that. But then I think the part that you were talking about in Reagan's America, it's super interesting what happens where when HIV AIDS comes on the scene, you have gay gyms, which you know, in the 70s were more existed, absolutely existed, but were more almost like an extension of nightclubs. Like that continues, but they also become these really important like organizing places and havens for people who are facing enormous uh, homophobia and social trauma outside. And so some of the gyms that I look at, like there's one in Houston that I look at, which I found so interesting. So in the 70s, it was like a mixed environment and it built itself as a gym and it was owned by a gay man and it was welcoming to gay people, but it that wasn't like, it wasn't such a big deal. You see this big rise in homophobia when HIV AIDS comes on the scene and this gym 
kind of closes ranks and it becomes almost like a community aid space where they're raising money for people who are sick. They're bringing doctors who are giving seminars on like different treatments. They're having like art shows for people in their community. And I find it so interesting how the gym became a space that did all these other things that didn't have much to do with exercise. But also when one of the symptoms of HIV AIDS was kind of wasting away, having that buff physique that of course you get at the gym was a way to broadcast that you are not sick, right? And so I find that um, so interesting. And, you know, there's some gentlemen who I quote who are like, I hope they're still alive today, but they were certainly alive in the early 2000s and what I was quoting, who had survived HIV AIDS. They live in Palm Springs, California, and they were sort of like, not laughing, but like they couldn't believe that this like new sort of like slight physique was like popular among young men because they're like, for us, the image of health, because we live through AIDS is to be like ripped and big and bulging because that is so much like showed that you weren't sick. And that was the, what we saw as healthy. So I just found that so interesting and so important. And I should also say one thing, there's someone else I quote, Simon Doonan, like famous for a variety of fashion related, you know, media. Um, but <laughs> I quoted something that he said when he talked about the sports connection in Los Angeles. And he talked about how during that period, like not so much the gym as this place that was like, oh, you could come and like get a medical seminar. But he's like, my friends were all dying. This was my escape. Those like phenomenal aerobics classes and the music and the spandex and all of that. That was a place I could just like immerse and be myself. And I got that impression a lot, like far from the sort of like joyless spaces of, you know, pounding it out on the treadmill that we might associate with fitness today, there was a kind of fun to those 1980s um, gyms that in its sense was, uh, in its own sense, was a kind of form of resistance and liberation too. Yeah, I, I, that, that is, could be another kind of, um, another kind of tension in your work, uh, the tension between joy and the, and between exertion, let's say. <laughs> I mean, and, joy and, and pain, right? Yeah, joy <laughs> and pain. Yeah. You, you, you see it, um, you, you, you see it, I mean, like, you know, you have a big section on Richard Simmons and when, uh, by, by the end of the book, I was just checking through like the infomercials of my life, by the way, I was like, <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Oh yeah. I remember that. I remember that. And my, my, my mother-in-law was a jazzercise instructor. And so I'm like calling. Really? Yeah. Jeannie. Yeah. <laughs> and my, Where was she an instructor? In Ohio in Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah. Oh, and cool. uh, yeah, so she was a labor and delivery nurse and also a jazzercise instructor. <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah. Um, but no. And so <laughs> I was joking with you earlier. My wife and I were kind of going through like that. Did your parents have the thigh master? Yes, they did. <laughs> you know, did you have and, and and before we got to the end, before I got to another book, I was like, you know, this is this is uh, going through. All, and my wife was like, it's going to end with the Peloton. And of course, yeah, it's. <laughs> Um, it ends with the skeleton and, and all of our friends who have this very expensive, either the extra piece of exercise equipment that they love and, you know, compete with each other in, in this very, uh, fun way, uh, or a very expensive place to like hang sweaters. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's something funny about lots of funny things about that. As you might imagine, I have thoughts, but, um, one of the things that is interesting about like home exercise equipment and the difference between the thigh master and the Peloton, one of course is like the price point, right? Mm -hmm. Like the Peloton is just like 20, 
$500, probably more now. The thigh master was not. It was like, I think you don't want to know how much the Peloton costs in Australia, which is why I don't have one. Otherwise, oh my God. in COVID, I would have definitely, because it launched in Australia during COVID, and I was very close oh. to hitting the button, but it was like, is $5,000 too much to spend? And you're like, yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> gosh. But um, one of the things that's so funny is that home exercise equipment used to be sold very much as something you could easily hide away. Like the reason that you would have, you would have it in your home, but like you didn't want anyone to know you have like an ab roller or a thigh master. Like it's embarrassing that like, you know, you have a body that you need to work on and you would spend time doing that. And that goes way back before the thigh master to like Charles Atlas and selling his dynamic tension programs. He's like, you can discreetly do this in your home. But by now... <laughs> By now, Peloton, Ergata, like all of these different um, kinds of workout equipment, they're like furniture, designer furniture. It's like things people want to show off. It's a status item. And that was so interesting to track. Like in the 90s, when you started to see home gyms being built and people like the fancy thing was not to have a membership at some elite big sports club. It was to have your own home gym and personal trainer. So it's a piece of that like privatization narrative that we um, that we talk about. Of, like you don't even go to the private gym anymore. You build a private gym at your house, right? Yeah. And it's part of that process of self-actualization as well, because, you know, you can ride on your Peloton and pretend you're in Paris, or you can ride on your Peloton and pretend you're, you know. You can also, you know, I like not to like hit it too hard with the privatization narratives. Obviously that lends itself very easily to the kind of like neoliberalism talk, but there are like people exercise at home because they have disabilities, because they have caregiving responsibilities, because I mean, a very popular one is like because they have bodies that even if they're not disabled, they feel uncomfortable showing up in, you know, spaces that can be very unwelcoming. So I tried to like bring all of that into because I think very often, like if you remember before the pandemic, like the Peloton was like, ha ha, it was the punchline of like the most privileged people have a freaking $2,500 or $5,000 of exercise bike in their homes. During the pandemic, it was like a lifeline, you know, and it kind of changed its image a bit. Yeah. I, your final chapter, it was really, it was really interesting. And it was vibing with me in some weird ways because the experience of the, of the pandemic in Australia was so different because we had um, a lockdown regime where they locked down the country. And so no one was allowed I in. Know. And then in Sydney, we were locked down by area. But one of the things that you could actually do, like you couldn't, you couldn't for about a few months, you couldn't go out and meet up with people <laughs> except for exercising. That was the only way you could meet people because you could exercise outside in groups of four or something like that. And so everyone all of a sudden was exercising because it was the only way so you'd go out to the park with someone and you're having lunch and the police would come by and you'd start doing push-ups. You know? <laughs> Are you serious? Oh, yeah. really do I knew that that was the rule, but is that the way? It, like, oh, yeah. Out, I mean, I think realistically speaking, it was, you know, and there's a whole politics of this. I mean, and, and in some ways lines up really well with your book about who could exercise and who was allowed to exercise, like, um, you know, so-called Sydney Westies or people who are clearly not Anglo- as they would say in Australia, um, which is to say kind of waspy or Italian, um, Italian Catholic, uh, would have a lot more trouble exercising. Like the police wouldn't believe them. Whereas like if I was out, you know, taking a walk with a, with a buddy of mine and we had a beer, oh, well, it's a walk, you know, we're, we're exercising. Right. Yeah. That's so funny. 
<laughs> that's so funny. I want to actually see that policy because that's amazing. Talk about the fit nation. Talk about a way of like encoding exercise into your actual law. That's amazing. I mean, I thought uh, like a huge fan of lockdown policy, but great carve out. What'd you say? It, the other parts weren't actually that fun, like not being able to go out in other ways, but like- No, you... it's horrible. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not like, I'm not celebrating <laughs> that at all. Um, yeah, I'm not celebrating that at no, all. No, no, no I, was, yeah. I mean, as you tell, as you see in the latter part of the book, I'm like, was very critical about oh, the way yeah, that course, yeah. much more moderate lockdown policies in the United States than in Australia um, about their implications for physical fitness. And I think yeah. that was- so, you know, I was really sad that the pandemic, well, I was sad about the pandemic for many reasons, but I was sad that the pandemic delayed my completion of this book because, you know, I have kids and, and all the rest. But I will say I am so grateful that I had the chance to conclude this book, um, you know, during and after the pandemic, because it was the, the discourse around public health was so illuminating of so many things, like just for those last chapters, but also earlier on. And I found it so interesting that like, you know, the kind of like COVID maximalists like had a version, ironically, even though public health is supposed to be expansive, had a rather narrow vision of what health was. Like it's about disease, COVID transmission prevention. And like, that is all we care about. And it's like, well, what about like socializing? And what about coming together? And what about running? And what about all these things? It sounds like in Australia, they at least realized like the exercise was a piece of it, but that's not it. And so that was just so... Um, just so interesting to witness. We had a very, I mean, not to, we could talk about this for a long time. We had a very yeah. low incidence of public transmission. So we would, we had this lockdown at a time when there were, um, they started the lockdown at a time when we had in Sydney hundreds of cases, like not thousands, not tens of thousands, not. And so we just had the complete uh, lockdown. And we actually went through a number of these. Melbourne was much worse, but um it, that was the big argument and in the end of your book shows it too in the ways in which you know the the fit nation or i always always wanted to call it fit nations but because it's so many different uh, groups but uh, the fit nation did get kind of bifurcated along these political lines in a way that was much less apparent in the or was much less visible in some ways in the earlier periods where you know conservatives mm -hmm. You know, oral people at Oral Roberts could have, uh, you know, things in common with, <laughs> with, uh, you know, people putting together stuff at a Salem, you know, <laughs> and then oh, totally, yeah. totally, and the then that now, shifts, right? Yeah, it feels a lot more yeah. separated. Um, look, we, I know, I know, we have uh, <laughs> an out year coming up soon, so I wanted to give you a little time, uh, Natalia, too, to tell us. Uh, this is maybe an unfair question because I know you just this book is not old right it just came out and it's coming out again in paperback i'll mention that again but at the end but uh, <laughs> thank you it, uh i wanted to give you a little time to tell us a bit about what you might be working on now as well so what 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 yeah projects do you have going absolutely so um i'm working on a new book proposal with my dear friend neil j young who i've had a podcast with for years past present um we're working on a book that's a history of the hamptons the region of new york <laughs> which is like known the world over as the luxurious destination and it is that and we are talking about the way that image was constructed but we're also looking at like a story of like infrastructure and politics and demographic change that characterizes that region and i think is applicable um to <laughs> Sorry. And I think it's applicable to 
um, a lot of other communities. Um, so I'm working on that. I have another, I have two actually documentary projects, which we'll see what happens, like film documentaries going on that are like built based on aspects of Fit Nation. My experience with Hollywood so far is like, don't believe it until you're like, pressing your remote and it's on the TV. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, I'm working on that. Um, I got another couple of podcasts in the works. I know this is really annoying because I can't tell you what they are. But yeah. No, no, you told oh well you can you can like I can't share that you can't yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can't share yet what they are, but one is related to a kind of also like a fitness related story. The other one is totally different and it's kind of in the realm of Jewish studies, which is something that I'm interested in new to me. So Hopefully, I'll be able to come back on to maybe talk about the, the book and share more about this in the future. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that'd be great. All right. So thank you all for listening. We've been You've been listening to the New Books uh, in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. I've been speaking today with uh, Natalia Melman Petrazella, who is an associate professor of history at the New School and is the author of uh, two books, but we've been talking today about Fit Nation, The Gains and Pains of America's Exercise Obsession. It's out with the University of Chicago Press. It came out in 2022, but you couldn't get it until 2023, but now you can get it in hardback, and in April, you can get it in paperback, So, and also on E, you can get an audiobook as well. Uh, Yay. It's in all formats, uh, and and uh, Natalia is also the author of an earlier book, Classroom Wars, Language, Sex, and the Making of Modern Political Culture with Oxford <laughs> University Press. Pet, uh, Natalia, uh, thank you so much for joining me today, um, and it's really been a pleasure to speak with you. This was so much fun. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. You've been listening to New Books in Sports. My name is Keith Rathbone, and I am a senior lecturer here at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. Thank you all very much for listening.